personally, I I don't feel like I have a real camp here. I'm not like, yay, technology companies. I'm not like, boo, censorship. I'm like, I don't know what to think, but I recognize that this is a really thorny issue (laughs) and that there are really good points and valid concerns on different sides of it. And I just think that we should sort of like sit in this moment and try to take in as much as we can and understand as much of the, the landscape as we can so that we can sort of figure out what we think is most important and sort of point ourselves in that direction because it's a these are big important questions and it's important that we understand the issue well so that's where i am and that's why i wanted to have this conversation hello and welcome to more than politics a podcast for those of us who want something more than what we've come to expect from politics and from our political discourse My name is Julie Varner-Walsh. I'm your host. In this week's episode, I talk with David Hencherik, an electrical engineer who has worked in the telecommunications industry for over 36 years. David and I discuss the controversy regarding free speech and, quote, big tech, the technology companies that make our internet and our social media usage possible. In the wake of the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, social media companies suspended accounts, President Trump's most notable among them, and hosting companies took websites offline. To many, these actions felt like attacks on Americans' freedom of speech. But were they? It's not such a simple question. Do private companies infringe on individuals' freedom of speech when they don't permit them to use their company's platforms? In a world where most political speech has moved online, have those platforms come to be our newest and most important public square? And which is more important, companies' rights to their private property or individuals' rights to use that property for public speech? David and I spoke at such length on these questions, and more, that I'm splitting our conversation into two episodes. Today's episode covers the often discussed, but perhaps seldom understood, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, how the right to free speech interacts with the right to private property, the concept of the public square, what big tech currently protects its users from, the enormity of the current moment, and the fact that big tech is made up of real individual people, each with their own consciences. David Hancherik is an electrical engineer who has worked in the telecommunications field for over 36 years. A majority of his experience has been in the areas of satellite communications for consumer and national security applications. While David's primary responsibilities have been in the analysis and design of these systems, he is also involved in business development and exposed to commercial and national security industry customer communities. David has taught scriptural studies throughout his adult life and has been a Catholic catechist for the past 10 years. He is keenly aware of the moral benefits and evils that are made possible by the telecommunications industry as well as how conscience considerations are applied within it. Our conversation was recorded on February 5th. 
All right. Hello, David. Welcome. Hi, Julie. How are you? Good. I'm so glad you could join us on the podcast today. You had lots of snow up there? We we did actually get a pretty good amount of snow. Um, well, depending on your perspective. You're you're down south, so to you we got a lot of snow, I'm sure. <laughs> I think we got like we probably got like six or eight inches, something like that. But any snow is a lot of snow to us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It snowed for a few days, which is kind of unusual here. Usually if we get a good snow, it's just like in one fell swoop and then we don't get any more for weeks. But we it's snowed for three days straight here, which is not super common. Um, the kids were loving it. <laughs> um, so I'd like to start by just having you tell us a little bit about yourself, give us an idea as to your professional background and your general moral or political perspective, just so we can get a sense of where you're coming from. Okay. Well, I'm a, 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 an engineer. Um, I've worked in the telecommunications industry in various forms for um, close to 40 years now. I started as a co-op student uh, 40 years ago uh, for the Navy. And all of my uh, career has been involved in, in communications, either for um, DOD defense work or for uh, commercial consumer uh, telecommunications. And that's meandered from to different forms over the years. I currently work for a company that um, uh, provides um, internet service uh, throughout the globe uh, via satellite. And um, so so a lot of the things that you do actually go over our network in one form or the other, uh, whether you're in a, a, your home or your business or, or in an aircraft, for example, um, and we provide we provide internet communications for uh, consumers, and we also provide uh, a majority of the internet communications that the United States government uses, including uh, all the way up to Air Force One. And uh, <laughs> that's interesting. Um, so, so my perspective is more as less so as an application provider, although we do hung up our own applications but more as the uh the pipe you know that that all this information travels through so we're not the only provider but we're we're a major provider so um over the years uh, um, that experience has given me exposure to a lot of the legal ethical and uh, social concerns that people have with communications uh, i am a catholic I, I was a cradle Catholic that disappeared for about three decades, unfortunately. But uh, uh, I've been back in the uh, Catholic Church. My my wife, who was not a Catholic, and I converted to Catholicism. And uh, oh, I reverted. She converted to Catholicism about a decade ago. We're both very involved in um, theology and teaching. Um, I teach um, RCIA confirmation and Bible classes and have, have done so for the last 10 years. So um, very much in love with the Catholic Church and, and the theology involved and things like that. My wife and I, we live in uh, the Atlanta area. We have 10 children. Um, 
a little background and and, and what, what what I'm hoping we can flavor the conversation with is the concept that people that work in in technology areas and telecommunications areas have a conscience and you know it's not all about making money uh, even at the executive levels so I'll give you a, an example um, you know when I started my career I worked for the US Navy we worked uh, in, um, and, and this is another part of my background is that a lot of the work I do is in the national security arena, a lot of which I can't speak about because of its classification level, but uh, things that were long ago I can and uh, that have been declassified. And then um, I can talk generally about it. But the, um, you know, early in my career, I worked on, on nuclear submarine systems and the thing is is it really did cause me just as a matter of personal uh, experience uh, a lot of angst because you know this was in the you know about 1980 it was it was pretty much the height of the cold war and uh, um, you know we were dealing with technology that that quite frankly we never wanted to be used and that creates issues for technologists, engineers, scientists, just like, uh, uh, you know, in the Manhattan Project, you know, Einstein and Oppenheimer mm -hmm. had similar issues and voiced them to government. So there were those issues. I, I used to dream about it. Um, you know, later in my career, another 10 or 15 years, I developed um, video guided weapons. And um, they were very popular in the 1980s and 1990s, popular in terms of government use. And uh, in the Kosovo War, uh, one of the systems I had developed that was uh, a video-controlled weapon was, um, because of human error, was flown into a passenger train. And part of the uh, follow-up to that was we had to view the video throughout the mission. And uh, unfortunately, I had the uh, misfortune of having to watch a, a video system that I had designed. Uh, I watched the people that were killed, uh, just passengers on a train, you could see glimpses of uh, particularly a woman's face. So the, the point I'm trying to make is that even in uh, you know, obviously in military situations, conscience is a big issue, but even where the internet in general is concerned, there are grave evils. And those of us that work in the industry do have a conscience. Um, oh, my, my political background is uh, I, I am a Republican and I voted uh, Republican um, throughout most of my life. Um, I'm more of a I'm conservative more than Republican, and uh, I was uh, kind of a, a Reagan conservative, if you will. That was the beginning of my adult mm -hmm. life, and I'm very nostalgic about the 1980s and 1990s and what what um, conservatism um, looked like and felt like during that time. Mm -hmm. All right, David. Well, thank you for that. Could you tell us just to start off with, tell us 
what Section 230 is. That's a term that we're hearing over and over again these days, especially um, since the attack on the Capitol. And I almost feel like the term has just become like a catch-all for anything people don't like about um, how social media platforms are engaging with free speech. Um, And I just feel like from a lot of the discussion I'm hearing about it, I just think people don't really understand what it is. And I would love if you could just explain it to us. Nineteen ninety-six, if you recall, the internet was pretty new. It was in very, very light use, and uh, Congress recognized that it was both uh, a potential for for good political discourse, religious discourse, social discourse, and potentially very bad uh, things like uh, pornography, uh, child trafficking, terrorist activity. Um, you know, seditious activity and things of that nature. So um, looking forward to what the internet might become, Section 230 was passed, I believe, pretty uh, overwhelmingly. And uh, it's easy to read. It is, uh, you know, you can look up Section 230. and Really, the meat of Section 230 is in Section C. And Section 230 did two things. First of all, it, uh, it declared that internet providers, application providers, and so forth, you know, were not publishers. And what that meant was they wouldn't have the legal ramifications of a publisher. And the example that they were attempting to call to mind was that of uh, a newspaper op-ed. Uh, page. So, you know, a newspaper obviously is responsible for the stories they present, for all the the truth and journalistic pr- principles involved. The op-ed page is a chance for the community to weigh in. So it is largely people using their own words. However, um, the newspaper is not required to publish every single op- letter, op-ed letter it receives. Um, and uh, I don't think anyone's surprised by that. The newspaper would be very thick if it did. Mm-hmm. And um, But because of the uh, nature of that, the publisher is responsible for certain legal aspects of what's published in the op-ed. And primarily what, what they're responsible for is uh, libel. If someone you know, accuses someone of a crime and it's proved to be false, within an op-ed, the publisher could be responsible. So Congress recognized that the internet is was too vast for any provider, be it of the internet service or the application that's being used, like Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, it would be impossible for them to be able to edit those posts in a similar way to, to a newspaper editor. And uh, so, so they, they're saying in Section 230 that an internet provider is not a publisher. They're not responsible for any libelous content that might be uh, in the material that's posted. That's the first thing. The second thing Section 230 does is it actually encourages, uh, in essence, without using the word, 
censorship. And um, in um, section C2, paragraph A, um, it talks about um, the actions taken in good faith by an internet provider to restrict access to material that that provider considers objectionable. And uh, it even states in, in that paragraph that that's independent of, that includes independent that may otherwise be constitutionally protected. In other words, Section 230 gives very wide berth to an internet provider to use whatever means is necessary to uh, eliminate material, things like pornography, illegal activities, filthy language, or in, in the words of Section 230, any material that is uh, harassing, violent, or otherwise objectionable. So Section 230 protects the, the internet provider, and it also gives the internet provider license to edit as they see fit. So in essence, it, 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 it views the internet provider as an op-ed page uh, without the responsibilities of um, that a publisher would have in an op-ed page to limit content. And that's not by virtue of wanting to protect internet providers over newspaper publishers. It's by virtue of the uh, understanding that it would, the, the size, you know, the difference. I was going to say, it's like a, a recognition of the difference in scope. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah, so the, the, you know, it's, it's not one page in a newspaper. It is millions upon millions of uh, pieces of content uh, every day. Right. Yeah. I, as I've, I mean, I only, I had sort of the broad outlines of what 230 was in hearing all of the debate of the past couple of months. And I just kept thinking for everyone who's um, blaming 230 for being the reason why social media companies can um, can censor political speech, my thought has been, well, if 230 weren't there, if there were no liability protection, this is on the first part that you talked about, if there were no liability protection for social media platforms, what would be their incentive to allow any political speech at all? Because if Facebook or Twitter can be sued because of what people post on their platforms, why would they allow any political speech? So I don't know. Personally, I just feel like if that protection were taken away, then we would suddenly find ourselves unable to engage in a lot of the issues that we're engaging in now because it would just simply be too dangerous for the platforms to allow us to engage in it if they're responsible for us. So that has been my basic understanding of it. And um, I don't know, what what do you think would happen if Section 230 were eliminated? Like, do you think that these platforms would, like, would it, would it be the end of the platforms or would it simply cause them to really narrow what they allowed on their sites? So we're seeing a bit of an example of that with, with some of the competing platforms, um, um, you know, Parler and uh, MeWe and some others. Now I, I don't, I, I don't have accounts on those. So this is secondhand information. 
but they are struggling with uh, attempting to maintain a sensor-free environment. And the reason is because, you know, it's become quite trashy. So if two thirty were to go away and, and it would, or, or be rewritten, I, I think it could go in one of two directions, depending on which of the two uh, things I mentioned were to, to be eliminated. One is if they, if they are allowed to maintain the ability to edit content, but they are then responsible for the content, then I think that they would over edit. And what you would have would be a, a very sterile environment. There would be virtually no political speech. There would be no you know, controversial issues would probably be virtually eliminated and they may become platforms just to post pictures of our family and talk about what they're doing. Things that nobody mm-hmm. would challenge them in court or object mm-hmm. to. Uh, the other thing that would happen is if, if the ability to censor disappears along with uh, uh, or, or separate from the liability for the information, then what happens is what, what has happened on several platforms and, and there would be no ability to stop pornography. There would be no, no ability to stop foul language or extremely objectionable material. And it would become a very unfriendly place for our, our children to, to be. Right. Um, related to that, what kinds of things and people really do big tech companies currently protect consumers from? Like I remember several years ago when um, there was that whole spate of like beheadings by terrorists in Syria and such. Um, You know, once one of these atrocities would happen, they would try to feed it out onto Twitter and such. And it was a big job for these companies to try to track down these images and remove them before they could be passed around. So, I mean, that's one example in my mind. But what other kinds of things are technology companies currently protecting consumers from that we're not even aware of because we're not seeing it? So certainly, and this, of course, depends on the provider. Uh, but certainly, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and perhaps before I even answer that, um, one of the things that I think we have to keep in mind when we consider what the goal is of uh, any application on the internet, be it social media or be it any other, it, it is profit. And um, what, mm-hmm. in in the case of social media, what makes um, what makes them profitable is an environment that people are comfortable in using. Uh, it increases their ad base and, and so their revenue. And that's really what is is what governs things and makes them reasonable is the free market. So, so for example, you know, a social media company certainly does not want to be politically biased. It doesn't serve them. So social media companies look at this all the time. They, they, they commission studies to see what the political bias is and if it becomes skewed they will adjust um but but also they have to make it an environment that is uh pleasant and um as broad as possible and that usually means mm-hmm. obviously uh pornography you know if, if 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 you don't want to if you don't want your entire market size to be to be only those interested in pornography you're going to keep it off because you will eliminate everyone 
else. Um, and then, of course, there's the matter of conscience associated with that. So nudity, pornography, um, um, harassing speech. Um, obviously, there's kind of a low bar on that right now, but um, uh, anything that would promote uh, harassment to the level that it could lead to uh, suicidal behavior, things like that, those are uh, those kind of filters are in place. Uh, anything pertaining to violence, you know, the uh, uh, anything that is threatening, physically threatening, will be filtered out. Um, these filters are not perfect, and um, primarily, um, you know, artificial intelligence is used. Uh, it's quite impressive what you can do with artificial intelligence. You know, it's, it's artificial intelligence learns just like a human learns. You know, it's presented with things that are uh, threatening and it learns what is threatening. And um, it's quite impressive, but there is a human layer at the end. So decisions to, uh, you know, artificial intelligence will, will divert information uh, to human filters who, who can then override or, or override the, the block or, or allow it to continue to be blocked. So, yeah, I just wanted, I just wanted to make a note about that. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I, I follow on social media, a lot of moms. <laughs> that's the, dem that's my demographic. And a couple years ago, there was this big like uproar about how like breastfeeding images were getting censored. Mm -hmm. And I think people s seem to have this like natural tendency to assume that anytime they are dinged on content, it's because they're being attacked and like persecuted. Whereas in all likelihood, it's probably just that the software was picking up images that it associated with nudity and pornography. And it was you know, sort of a, a wide sweep to try to remove images that were like objectively <laughs> um, harmful. And um, people are assuming that they're being attacked when really it could just be that a computer system picked up their picture. And it's not that Facebook has a problem with breastfeeding. It's that artificial intelligence is looking for pictures of nudity. Yeah, I, I, I would believe, I don't know any examples of that particular issue but but my I would guess it's very likely that you're correct yeah I just I've, I guess I've seen some discussion about this and um I mean who knows I'm not I'm not an engineer but um I just felt like it was unfortunate that people were assuming that they were being personally targeted as opposed to entertaining the idea that it could be because of this issue that fortunately we don't most consumers of social media don't really have to think about much because we're not seeing the pornographic images and such. Yeah, so that sensitivity is understandable. And uh, yeah. we all have our yeah. buttons that um, yeah. I have an autistic son. If, if I posted about autism and, and they were blocked because something picked it up, I would presume, you know, I was being discriminated against. So I, I understand that. And I think probably like an example you gave of breastfeeding women, I would imagine, I don't know that particular example, but I would imagine that has probably been corrected. Yeah. All I can say is I have been seeing fewer complaints about it recently, so maybe it's been corrected or maybe people just have moved on to other things. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so it's complex. 
as you can yeah, see. Yeah, yeah. But certainly violence is is of primary concern. Um, you know, with Section 230 in place, if someone, you know, if, if, uh, if a group of people were coordinating uh, activity that was violent and that violence then did occur, Section 230 would protect the, the social media provider it, it, as long as it, it's not proven that they were complicit in helping to organize that. Uh, however, there is no uh, outside of uh, Section 230. It certainly does not behoove uh, a social media provider to allow that content to go through. It will ultimately hurt their business. And and the thing is, these companies are well. Our companies are very large and successful. Uh, we're successful because. We, we create that, that uh, open environment, not in spite of it. And also there is conscience. And um, I, I know I'm fortunate enough to work for a group of executives um, that, that are very sensitive to not only the corporate conscience, but the conscience of their employees. Because if a company does things that are very objectionable in order to make money, Order, or in order to satisfy their own political goals, they will lose good employees. And that's uh, a very important aspect of this as well. So, so corporate conscience, uh, individual employee conscience, I, I think has a nat there's a natural factoring in of those things. No one wants to work for a company that enabled violence. No one wants to work for a mm -hmm. company that... Um, uh, you know, pollutes our children in terms of uh, harmful content, things of that nature. So I think the free market works in terms of keeping, uh, in the long term, keeping companies uh, honest in, the, in, in these areas in terms of filtering bad content. Right, right. All right. Um, could you? talk to us a little bit about how the right to free speech and the right to private property interact when it comes to these technology companies and especially social media. Yeah. So, you know, the fathers were pretty genius in the standpoint that they uh, were very forward looking. So, so, you know, the founders obviously didn't envision an internet. Maybe they envision things like it. I don't know. Um, but as a result, both the Constitution and, and the Bill of Rights are very terse and vague, if you will, to allow things to be uh, considered in the future, things that they uh, may not have envisioned. So a right to free speech, um, we tend to generalize as being, you know, we can say what we want when we want where we want and that's simply not true right so all the, the the entirety of freedom of speech in the first amendment basically says uh, congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech in other words congress cannot pass a law that says you you can't talk about this uh, you, if you're this kind of person you you can't speak publicly or things like that 
it's long been understood to mean public speech. And um, so the question comes into play, well, what does that mean about private property? So for example, um, if you have a front porch that faces a busy street and you want to use that to set up a microphone and talk to the people passing by about your faith or, or any other issue, um, you're certainly free to do that. But the question is, is somebody else free to come on your front porch and exercise that same right of free speech? Well, very few people would, would believe that that right exists. And so that's all the Constitution really says about free freedom of speech. Now, on private property, we have the, the primarily the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments, and mainly the Fifth Amendment. And all the Father said about this was, uh, "Nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation." So, so if that porch is in a really good place, um, you, you know, no government. I, I would. Have, I would interpret that to mean I'm not a constitutional attorney, but I would interpret that to mean that the government cannot force people to come up on my porch and use that microphone to counter my argument that I'm making. So really that's how simple it is from a constitutional standpoint. So that leaves a lot of room for interpretation. And we've seen uh, examples of this in other areas. We've seen the, the example um, of the, the cake baker that did not right, want to right, sell right. a cake to a, for a gay wedding. Well, of course, that had arguments on both sides. You know, okay, you have an open shop. You're, you're, you know, are you discriminating against these people or are you, ex are you exercising your religious rights? Things like that. The Supreme mm -hmm. Court landed on the side of the cake baker. And I, I believe that I, I subscribe to that conclusion. Uh, we have another example in, um, that, that maybe people wouldn't agree with so readily or conservatives may not agree with so readily uh, in, in the example of campaign finance reform. So John McCain during the Bush administration uh, crossed the aisle and a group of them came up with this bill limiting campaign contributions to PACs and, um, and, and by corporate sponsors. Um, and the bill passed, it was signed into law by George Bush and the Supreme Court said, no, uh, a campaign contribution is free speech. So that was an interpretation. Not every uh, judge would make, depending on how they look at that, but they viewed an equivalence between a contribution and free speech and, and, and private property. The money is their private property. So the question is, is, should there be fairness in that? And so I don't think anyone would argue that if you give $100 to a Democratic uh, candidate that in fairness, you have to give $100 to a Republican candidate. That's, that's a choice mm -hmm. of that person's private property which is in this case is money, even though their money is considered free speech. So there's many ways that, that these uh, have been looked at. So, so my opinion is that if you are a, an internet provider or a technology company like my own, um, you know, we invest 
great deals of money into this property. We, we invest enormous amounts of time. We develop intellectual property, which is ours. All these things go into building these platforms that we take for granted. And in most cases, for example, we're a satellite provider. It costs us a billion dollars worth of investment to put up a satellite system. And, um, you know, that, that's pretty substantial amount of private property. So mm-hmm. we feel mm-hmm. that we have the right to use that for whatever purposes we deem fit. So the question is, is that equivalent? Is that private property equivalent to my front porch? In the example of, of, of speaking from my front porch to, to an audience. Uh, do I have to allow, if I allow anyone on that private property, do I have to allow everybody on that private property? Mm-hmm. The porch mm-hmm. example, uh, if I have that microphone and I'm talking about my faith and I see a friend that, that I know agrees with my view on faith and I invite him to speak, does that mean I then, because I invited him to speak, do I have to invite everyone to speak? If I invite hundred to speak. Does that mean I have to invite others to speak? Do I have to make it fully open? So that's the tension between private property and free speech. Certainly, my neighbor has the right to put up his own microphone and exercise his right of free speech from his front porch or from public property. But no, he, he does not have the right to enter my private property and exercise his right of free speech. So the question becomes, uh, relative to free speech and, and to private property, the question becomes, at what point does my private property have to be treated as public property? Is it a question of how many mm-hmm. people I invite onto my private property? Um, these are the questions to be resolved. And, and um, there, there is, and, and I'm not making an argument for one over the other. This is up to the constitutional lawyers and ju- judges. But the, the thing of it is, is that there is legal uh, theory now that private property can be treated as public square. This started with uh, a case in the 1940s, Marsh versus Alabama where there was a, a privately owned town, privately owned streets, and the, and the owner of the town, a company, uh, didn't like the fact that some of the residents were passing out religious literature on the street. And that went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled that, uh, that even though that was a privately owned street, it was considered public square meaning that since the townspeople had access to it, they, uh, they had a right of free speech on it. Um, and that is the argument, the counter argument to private property uh, on the internet. Is that a public square? That has not been decided yet. And uh, I imagine that is the area where Section 230 may fall. Yeah, that's interesting because when you when you put up that street analogy, I can think of it in two ways compared to social media companies. On the one hand, you can think of it as 
social the, these platforms have become so ubiquitous that essentially everybody is allowed onto it. Therefore, it is public square. On the other hand, you can you know when you sign up for these platforms, you agree to their terms of service, and so you can also envision sort of a booth set up on the street. And in order to pass through the street, you have to sign an agreement and uh, agree to abide by their rules. And in that case, maybe it's not a public square because you have agreed to this set of rules. So, you know, I I can see it from both sides. It's an interesting question. It is an interesting question. And there is, in, in some cases more than others, there's an impact to the owner of the private property. So in the case of the company that owns the street, um, I would imagine the court didn't see much impact to them. It didn't, you know, they owned the entire town. They owned the company where everyone worked. There really was no, it was not going to cause them any competitive disadvantage. Mm -hmm. In other words, there was nothing for the public interest to compensate as the uh, Fifth Amendment states, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Now, if the government were to come to Facebook, for example, and say, no, you're not allowed to censor any content whatsoever, and this creates a um, undesirable environment for Facebook's users, Facebook could argue in court that, well, what you've just done is you have... Uh, cost me uh, a great deal of money. Right. Because advertisers are likely not going to want to advertise on a platform promoting pornography and (laughs) terrorist images and such. Exactly. So I think in that case, the Fifth Amendment would override freedom of speech from my perspective. But we'll see how this all all lands. It's a very... uh, very interesting time. Yeah. And it's, I think this is really one of the biggest questions of this moment, which is, you know, in a society where most of our political speech has moved online. And so online is where we care most about the freedom of speech. How should we balance the importance of a free political discourse with the concerns of the companies that own those online platforms? I mean, it's just, I, I don't expect you to have the answer here, but it's just, it's a big question for us to resolve in our society. Yes, it is. And, and um, I guess I would argue that the you know, responsible social media uh, provider, it's in their best interest to, to, uh, to balance that in the right way. Um, certainly um, take, you know, the recent examples where, Many are offended by what they view as censorship of political speech in general that they don't view as offensive uh, versus what has quite frankly been over the last three, three, four months, uh, a pretty extraordinary time in terms of uh, political speech that has turned deadly and um, on whatever scale. Um, you, you might perceive, I don't think anyone can argue that political speech did in fact turn deadly and, uh, or at least violent. And so, uh, you know, Twitter and, um, Facebook 
made some decisions. Some other companies, I think, made some decisions to to censor, you know, either either by fact checking or, you know, actually labeling a post false, or or outright blocking a post to the point of outright blocking certain individuals. Um, so I think it's a fair argument to make that, um, that, that in some of these instances, they may have gone too far. I don't think it was politically motivated. I, it's my personal opinion. It, it, uh, I don't think it was politically motivated. I think it was honestly motivated toward, um, uh, reducing the temperature in terms of, um, Mm -hmm. events that were taking place and these were extraordinary events i mean we're talking about a year in which yeah uh there was a plot uncovered to kidnap and murder the governor of a state there was a uh, a, a plot to uh, kidnap and murder the vice president of the united states uh, uh as well as uh, congress people and um depending on how seriously you take those threats, you know, was that just a game? Is that just, it, it really doesn't matter. Social media companies took that very, very seriously. And they made some very hard decisions. Um, but let's think about that. Twitter, for example, the, 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 I don't know the number, but um, their revenue loss in, in blocking POTUS is huge. They gave up an enormous amount of money because you're talking about the most followed single poster on Twitter. And just, just, just removing those followers, just that one account cost them an enormous amount of money, not to mention others that were simply offended by the action and remove themselves from the mm -hmm. platform. And mm -hmm. by the way, that's the right response. If you know, we do have a free market society, um, Facebook is not a monopoly. Twitter is not a monopoly. You can go to other platforms. They're, they, they are doing nothing to block other platforms from existing, and there are many other platforms. They just happen to be the most successful one. And the reason they are the most successful one is they take steps to, to um, maintain a broad appeal as opposed to a particular political, social, or religious appeal. I want to back up for, to something you said a moment ago um, when you were pointing out how huge these events were. I just keep thinking if you were to go back even a year ago, but certainly a few years ago, and you were to tell people there was like an actual attempt to kidnap a U.S. governor, um, potentially kill her. It was, you know, thwarted. There was an attempted insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, and people were trying to locate the vice president to potentially execute him. I mean, if you told people those things not very long ago, people would just not believe you. I mean, exactly. it would just seem totally absurd. And I think it's when we get caught up in the details of the moment, it can be hard for us to grasp just how enormous the moment is. And um, and I think that should be 
a cautionary lesson to us. Like as outrageous as we would have thought those things were a year ago, like something equally outrageous could be around the bend. And um, and I think that is important for, for people to recognize in this whole subject matter. I mean, personally, I, I don't feel like I have a real camp here. I'm not like, yay, technology companies. I'm not like, boo, censorship. I'm like, I don't know what to think, but I recognize that this is a really thorny issue (laughs) and that there are really good points and valid concerns on different sides of it. And I just think that we should sort of like sit in this moment and try to take in as much as we can and understand as much of the, the landscape as we can so that we can sort of figure out what we think is most important and sort of point ourselves in that direction because it's a these are big important questions and it's important that we understand the issue well so that's where i am and that's why i wanted to have this conversation yeah so and if, if i could add and imagine if you will and i'm i'm going to return to what i more or less started with which is the issue of conscience and um so let's imagine one of these cases, either in uh, uh, Governor Whitmer or, uh, uh, um, or, or Vice President Pence. Let's suppose that one of those attempts was successful and one of these people mm-hmm. lost their lives in that. Now suppose you're an employee at Facebook and you were that last line and this artificial intelligence uh, uh, recognized some chatter about doing these kinds of things and recommended that these posts be blocked. And you decided, no, I don't want to get into that political quagmire. I'm going to let them go. And then the person is killed. Mm-hmm. Imagine that that person is not big tech. That person is a man or a woman who goes home mm-hmm. to their children sits around the dinner table and says, you know, when you ask what they did at work today, I, uh, I enabled the execution of a political figure. Mm-hmm. There, there's a personal side to this, and it's not perfect. Mm-hmm. And th- that personal side is important. It's very easy to say big tech, big pharma, deep state, yeah, all these yeah. things, but... Uh, but these things involve massive numbers of personal stories. Right, right. Yeah, there are real, real people behind yeah. behind all these screens. Yeah. Okay, we're going to leave that there for now. I hope you enjoyed the first part of my conversation with David Hencherik. We'll be picking up the rest of the conversation in our next episode. Please visit the show notes to find a link to Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Thank you for listening to this episode of More Than Politics. I hope you'll subscribe to it, and that if you like it, you'll share it and leave a rating or review so others can find it. My name is Julie Varner-Walsh. I'm your host. You can learn more about me by checking out my blog at thesewallsblog.com And you can follow me on Instagram at Julie V. Walsh and Facebook at More Than Politics Podcast. This podcast's theme music is by purple-planet.com.